Happy holidays and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And Cam, as it's a magical time of the year, my first question, as always, is what are we doing this week? We are, you know, hopping in the sleigh and hanging out with Gina Davis, Samuel Jackson for Rennie Harlan's The Long Kiss Goodnight from 1996. Usually we would discuss our previous experiences of the films, but I knew nothing about this film whatsoever. What about you, Cam? Yeah, uh, I saw this one back uh, in home video and because it, it was released at the end of 1996. So I would have seen it in probably the first handful of months in 1997, I would think. Um, and probably, I guess maybe the spring actually, but this was a movie that I remember, um, I'll get into it a little more later, but this was the follow-up for Gina Davis and Rennie Harlan from Cutthroat Island, which was a kind of notorious disaster of the nineties. And so like this movie really wasn't, at least from my perspective, advertised or marketed as heavily as it probably should have been. So it really didn't appeal to me when it opened in theaters, so I skipped it. Um, and then it got some decent reviews. You know, it was definitely mixed, but there were some very positive people out there talking about how cool this movie was. And so I rented it when it hit video, and I remember enjoying it. It's not one that stuck really large in my mind, but when I think of that era, I mean, I'm watching stuff like, you know, The Rock and Broken Arrow and a lot of where action was going versus where action was and this feels more like a kind of like true lies more of a throwback to the action that was being ushered out and so at that time it didn't grab me maybe as much as it should have but i did enjoy it i'll say that yeah i'll save my thoughts on the film until later but i did pick up on the true lies vibe Mm -hmm. it's very strong Uh, it just feels like a bit of a relic in that sense well, it does feel, you know, without giving anything about uh, my thoughts on it now, but it does feel in many ways like kind of the curtain coming down on 80s style action, doesn't it? Yeah, that sort of bombastic in your face, you know, pedal to the metal type thing. I mean, we were ready for the subtlety of Michael Bay and The Rock. <laughs> uh, it's all nuance with that Michael Bay. It's more like we shifted to more of that music video style action editing, although that did exist in the past, but Michael Bay just amped it up an extra degree, plus all the Asian influence stuff coming in as well. So that's where action was going. Um, this just feels a little more of that classical action of the 80s, yeah, for sure. Right, well, not to bury the lead, but uh, let's get into everyone's favorite, which is the letterbox.com synopsis. The Long Kiss Goodnight. What's forgotten is not always gone. Samantha Kane, suburban homemaker, is the ideal mum to her eight-year-old daughter, Caitlin. She lives in Honesdale, PA, has a job teaching school and makes the best Rice Krispie treats in town. But when she receives a bump on the head, she begins to remember small parts of her previous life as a lethal, top-secret agent. You know, I kind of like that one. They took yeah. some like license there. They worked in the Rice Krispie Treats. They really set a tone there, a mood. Maybe Shane Black wrote his own synopsis for The Long Kiss Goodnight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just editing on letterbox.com right now. That's right. I'm going to give this one an A-. I like it. 
Fair enough. Uh, so I have a lot of questions about this film, having just watched it for the first time, but I'd like to know how it came to be. So what have you got for me, Cam? So this movie is a collision of two of the biggest forces in action filmmaking in sort of that 80s, 90s era, um, that sort of pre, you know, the rock 96 kind of era. Um, and we'll start with Shane Black. So Shane Black, at the time of this movie, is the highest um, priced screenwriter in town. He's a guy who had written Lethal Weapon. He'd written The Last Boy Scout. And um, at a certain point, this is something that so is not the case now. But at a certain point, studios were paying screenwriters incredible amounts of money for original scripts. So Shane Black was selling scripts for a ton of money. Um, Joe Esterhaus, who wrote Basic Instinct, was also making an absolute fortune selling scripts. They really were looking at screenwriters as the formula for what people want to see when I think all writers know no one cares about us. (laughs) And so um, Shane Black was paid $3.5 million for his screenplay for The Long Kiss Goodnight. Scott, does that seem high? (laughs) Sorry, $3.5 million. Correct. How on earth did they think paying him $3.5 million for this script was a good idea? It was the era. It's just like they were looking at established screenwriters as being people they needed. You know how nowadays it's all about like a franchise name or a property? We went through this weird period in the 90s where they were just looking at screenwriters as being a brand. I mean, we lament now that there's no original uh, IPs. Yeah. Uh, so th- th- at least this, I suppose I can understand that at least this is completely fresh. Mm-hmm. Well, it-, it takes a lot of things from other films, but I've never heard this story exactly this way before. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it was like on the page, but like Shane Black also wrote um, a couple years before this Last Action Hero, which was turned into the Arnie film that was a just a financial disaster and pretty much reviled upon release. And everything I've heard is that the original script that Shane Black wrote for that movie was fantastic and was overhauled by about an army of writers. And so, like, I think the man's scripts write very well. He became a novelist after this film before becoming a director himself with 2005's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Since then, he's done Iron Man 3. He did The Nice Guys. Um, There was also the unfortunate um, Predator reboot. But other than Predator... Everything he's done really does have a certain spark to it. He's a writer who has a ton of personality. And so I think when they were paying him this massive payday, which also, I should add, included a bonus $500,000 paycheck for being the producer on the film, um, they were looking at him as a very important voice in action films. See, I knew I knew the name, but I hadn't put any thought into it after that. So he made Iron Man 3. I remember the nice guys being quite funny. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, right, so I can see why he's got a bit of a bit of credit to his name. Yeah, he just was the guy in sort of that late '80s, early '90s period. Like he did uncredited, um, you know, script doctoring for several films as well. Like he was just someone they wanted. Whenever they wanted punchy dialogue, Shane Black was the guy you were going to call. Was there any other films he made around this time apart from Last Action Hero that I would know? Uh, Lethal Weapon. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, the yeah. first one. Yeah, he wrote Monster Squad, 
Um, that's another one that's kind of a cult favorite. Mm-hmm. But he did. He's not prolific. He's not someone who was just cranking things out. He did do script passes on Predator on set because he was also an actor in that film. Um, but uh, in terms of credited screenplays, no, he doesn't have a lot. Okay. Okay. What else have you got? Yeah. So Shane Black has written the script for Long Kiss Goodnight, and the studio's like, we love this. And so they turn to Rennie Harlan. And Rennie Harlan is a director who's very interesting and in many ways was kind of this flash in the pan. But at a certain point in time, Rennie Harlan was one of the guys. He is a Finnish filmmaker, um, and he produced the most expensive Finnish film ever called Born American, which got a bit of a release here. And that got him brought over to America, where he started off in horror. He did a kind of a B-movie called Prison before he was picked up to do Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, which is not one of the greatest Nightmare on Elm Street films, but it was the highest grossing until Freddy vs. Jason, like, I don't know, 15, 20 years later. So Rennie Harlan had definitely made a name for himself. And so he was picked up. They looked at him and they said, you did a good Nightmare on Elm Street film. We're giving you Die Hard 2. Oh. Yeah, bit of an upgrade. Okay. Yeah, all right, okay. Good trajectory. We like it. And Die Hard 2, I think, as everyone knows, was a massive smash. It's one that people kind of pick over, but I've always really enjoyed Die Hard 2. How do you feel about it? I didn't get as much from it as I did from 1 and 3. Okay. They yeah. felt like interesting films with something to say or a, a different take on things, whereas 2 just felt like, oh, it's it's um, John McClane, but now he's at an airport. Right. I kind of come down on the kind of descending order of like one followed by two followed by three. Three I like a lot until you get to the finale, which feels so weirdly tacked on and reshot that it just kind of loses me. Whereas like the second one, I always really enjoy the setting and some of the set pieces in that movie are absolutely incredible. I, I just always think about the third as the sort of I enjoy the buddy cop thing with him and Samuel Jackson, which we're going to talk about soon. Um, so that's my I was I would come down as a one, three, two. On, on the Die Hard films, and then you could forget about four and five. I think you are actually the more popular opinion. I think most people do put three at their second favorite. So people yeah. often say I'm the more popular one, Cam. <laughs> and so you know, Rennie Harlan then goes off and does Cliffhanger after after Die Hard Two, and um, in terms of his next big follow up, he did do the Andrew Dice Clay film Adventures of Ford Fairline. I think actually around the same time as Die Hard Two. Uh, that movie, bit of a cult fave, probably has held up very, very poorly. <laughs> I have no idea but about that film. So, I'm just thinking of the Andrew Dice Clay comedy routines of the era, and I would guess that movie is basically unwatchable now. But um, Cliffhanger, of course, was Sylvester Stallone. Massive hit again. So Rennie Harlan is definitely established as one of the biggest action guys going, and he basically has a blank check to work with after Cliffhanger. And Rennie Harlan has a dream, Scott. And that dream is to make a pirate movie. Okay. This isn't a pirate film, so go on. And so he takes an insane amount of money, about $98 million budget, but there was a lot, I think, going out the back end. Like, this movie was very expensive, and it was Cutthroat Island, which I referenced a few minutes ago, starring Gina Davis, who Rennie Harlan married in 1993. Uh And it was a movie that was supposed to co-star Michael Douglas. He dropped out and Matthew Modine jumped on board. Cutthroat Island was released with a massive, massive budget and a lot of problems on the production. A lot. Like it was kind of like the water world 
actually it came out the same year as Waterworld actually so it was kind of like you had two waterlogged epics coming out the same year that had nothing but bad press and Cutthroat Island came out and made worldwide 10 million dollars oh wow it's considered one of the biggest disasters of all time like Cutthroat Island is legendary I thought Waterworld was known as the the big the big flop no, like Waterworld actually did okay. Box office wise, I bet you if you look at it, it probably broke even. Oh. Pretty close. I, I yeah. rented it on VHS. I remember being quite excited to see it. Um, but I never saw uh, this film you're talking about. What was it called again? Cutthroat Island. Cut- yeah. Hmm. I did see it. Um, I don't know. Like I thought it was sort of entertaining enough when I was, what, 14 years old or something. I'd be very curious to revisit it and see if I thought it was a disaster or just kind of a very weird film that people didn't, you know, latch on to. But nonetheless, Cutthroat Island bankrupted its um, studio, Carolco Pictures. <laughs> so, yeah, good. Very legendary. Carolco produced Terminator 2. So, like, it was a big deal at that time. And it was done, really, after Cutthroat Island. And so, that movie comes out. It's a complete disaster. And then Rennie Harlan decides he wants to bring back his wife, you know, Gina Davis, and pair up the two of them again on The Long Kiss Goodnight. And so it seems by all accounts, the production was actually pretty smooth. Um, the only really thing I came across was Samuel Jackson's character was killed um, during the film at a certain point, and test audiences reacted very poorly, so they reshot it to make him live. Um, but other than that, it seems like it was actually a pretty smooth production, but the movie did not do very well. Um, it was, it wasn't a cutthroat Island by any stretch, but it was a box office underperformer. Um, it, um, cost 65 million to produce domestically. It made 33 million international 56 for a total of 89 million worldwide. I mean, it's better than cutthroat Island. It is, but it marked the end of the Harlan slash Davis uh, pairings on screen. Um, so that was about the end. And actually their marriage did break up in 1998, um, just a couple years after this film. I was going to so, ask you if it actually ended their partnership in real life. And I thought, no, that's a really bad question to ask. And then you're just right in there with the information. <laughs> long kiss goodnight and long kiss goodbye. <laughs> and I just had an idea. If you ever did want to go back and revisit Cutthroat Island, I have a name for our podcast if you'd like it. Is it Pirate Hards? No, no, no. Spirate Hards. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Coming soon. I mean, I don't know how many pirate movies there really are, but the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise alone will give us a run for our money. There you go. Swinging into a podcast app near you. <laughs> Spirate Hards. <And> so, <laughs> so this movie landed at number 36 for the year, right between the George Clooney romantic comedy, uh, the one he did with Michelle Pfeiffer, One Fine Day, and um, also, um, one spot above, Beavis and Butthead Do America, which was a very popular film in my little world in 1996. Yeah, I remember everyone talking about that, and I was only nine. It's a really funny movie, and um, it even has a Rob Zombie um, animated section in it. Uh, I think Beavis and Butthead Do America, um, underrated. I think it was actually quite strong. I, I can't make a butthead hard pun <laughs> out of that one, unfortunately. <sighs> and so the top three for that year 1996 is a big blockbuster year number one is independence day number two is twister and number three 
is the original Mission Impossible. It's a solid year. 1996 is the first major year where I become consumed by movies. Like I watched so many movies of 1996 and that would kind of continue the ball rolling to this modern day. But up until then, it was sort of a build up. And then 1996 was like the big year for me. I feel like if if we're talking about how we were with films at the time, me and my family from around about 95, maybe, um, were regularly almost every weekend going to Blockbuster and renting out a new film. Yeah. So all of the sort of 90s films and the early noughties, I saw them on VHS mostly at home, except for the big ones that I could go to cinema for. But uh, most of those ones you mentioned, I did see them. Independence Day, saw it on VHS, all of that. So yeah, definitely uh, definitely was around for that. But I do not remember Long Kiss Goodnight. Yeah, definitely was overshadowed by a lot of what was going on at that time. Um, some other notables I'll just mention on the box office lists for that year. Um, some other spy movies. At number 65, we had Spy Hard, the Leslie Nielsen comedy that gave this podcast its name. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. I, I am looking forward to one day going back or going to that film. <laughs> Have you seen it? Um, I think I've seen bits of it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, cool. I, don't, I don't think I could bring, tell you the plot or anything. And at number 67, we had Harriet the Spy, which is the kids' film. Did you ever see that? I... I'm a co-host of a spy podcast, Cam. Of co- no, I haven't seen it. <laughs> I didn't either. I was a little. It was a little too kid leaning. I think it. I may be wrong about this, but it might have been a Nickelodeon production, and I was at that point like 15 or 16, so I just really didn't have any interest in watching it. You were more of a Cartoon Network kind of guy. Yes, um, and uh, Samuel Jackson. This is like you know just coming. Up, he's shortly after Pulp Fiction. Because that movie's released in 94, the big Oscar season's in 95. And so Samuel Jackson at this point is just signing up and working like crazy. So he had a number of movies on the top 200 this year. Um, At number 19, he had A Time to Kill, the John Grisham adaptation with Sandra Bullock and Matthew McConaughey, which I recall being okay. I think it was pretty decent. And then he had two lower ranking ones on the list. Um, At number 138, there was the boxing comedy, The Great White Hype. And at number 213, he had Tree's Lounge, which was obviously outside the 200, but was worth mentioning because it was a Steve Buscemi-directed film and uh, really worth checking out if you haven't seen it. Hmm. You did mention before about Samuel Jackson's character uh, dying in in the test screenings. Well, no, he didn't die in yeah. the test screenings. His character died. <laughs> <laughs> no, the movie, the movie died in the test screenings. <laughs> Flatline. Um I mean, we'll get into it later, I imagine. But is that probably to do with the ending? I'm guessing so. Like, I it doesn't seem like they did drastic reshoots. So I'm wondering if it was just he died in the car. Yeah. I, I When you yeah. said it, I thought, well, he, even when I was watching the film, I thought he had died. Yeah. And then obviously we'll talk about what happens after that. But, you know, yeah, spoil the podcast. So, yeah. Um, and so, you know, that kind of wraps up Long Kiss Goodnight. I'll just add a couple of things. Um because the box office is quite, you know, poor or lukewarm, however you want to put it. Rennie Harlan says he blames the advertising, which he thought was really confusing. Um, I'll take his word for it. I don't even remember the advertising for this movie. And I do remember advertising for a lot of movies of this era. I just think it was very unconfident advertising would be my guess. I wonder what the trailer looks like. Yeah, I didn't check it out. I think I will, though, after we, you know, finish uh, recording this. Well, I was going to say, one thing I always do, and you'll see it on our, our social media, is I like to find 
alternate movie posters and all kinds of movie posters and put them up of the films we're covering of the week. And I, I looked up this film uh, just as sort of research before recording it, and the posters are a mess. Yeah. You, you, you'd have no idea what film this is. So I just wonder how much of it was just that whiff of stink from Cutthroat Island that it was another Rennie Harlan, you know, Gina Davis film coming out 10 months after Cutthroat Island. I just wonder if they were like, let's just assume this is a disaster. Let's do the bare bones marketing kind of thing. Sort of the Star Trek nemesis approach. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good example. Yeah. yeah. Um, Rennie, Rennie Harlan to this day talks about wanting to do a sequel. Um, he says he would like to do a movie that focuses on their 20 something year old daughter and Gina Davis's character would be killed at the start of the movie. Samuel Jackson says he would happily come back. I mean, Yvonne Zimmer is still a working actress. Sure. Uh, I, I don't think he needs it, but... Mm. Yeah, I mean, we should add, Rennie Harlan is a director who, after this movie, kind of disappears to a certain degree in terms of big-budget prestige films. Like, he does um, Deep Blue Sea in 99, which is a, you know favorite of mine uh, it's a very fun movie but after that he kind of just disappears into a lot of you know pretty bad movies like 12 rounds with john cena the legend of hercules with kellen lutz uh, mine hunters um he was one of the directors who made a version of the fourth exorcist film um so like rennie harlan's seen better days at this point he's not going to be making a big budget long kiss goodnight sequel in this lifetime I feel like I want to press you on that uh, Exorcist 4 thing, because I have no idea what you're talking about. But I'm also aware that we've been talking about this film for 25 minutes or so uh, before we've actually spoken about how we feel about the film. Sure. Okay, I'll, I'll do a long story short. Um, Exorcist 4, they want to make it because horror was big at this point. Uh, it's kind of in the wake of Scream and all those slasher films. Sure. And it's a, fran- it's a franchise people know. So they get Paul Schrader, the writer of Taxi Driver mm-hmm. and director of movies like Hardcore, very idiosyncratic um, director, writer. He made First Reformed um, just a couple years ago with Ethan Hawke. Really good movie. So anyways, uh, Paul Schrader, very odd guy, makes his version of The Exorcist 4. Turns out he made a Paul Schrader film and the studio hates it completely. So they bury it and they say, okay, Rennie Harlan, we're hiring you. We're giving you the same screenplay. Can you please shoot another version of this movie that is mainstream friendly? And so there's rewrites going on and all this sort of stuff. They release Rennie Harlan's in the summer. Box office, eh, middling performer. And then like maybe like eight months later, they release the Paul Schrader version as well in theaters in a limited run. So there are two versions of The Exorcist 4. And how different are they? Quite different. Um, The same cast, obviously, in both. A lot of the same locations. Um, plot elements are changed in each one. Certain characters take background in, you know, one version versus the other. Um, it's more of an interesting experiment. Neither movie's good, but Paul Schrader's is the better one. So it's the original version of the release, the Snyder cut. Yeah, it really was. And, uh, it's a movie that I don't think anyone cared about in Exorcist 4 at that point, but yeah, that's kind of the story of Exorcist 4. And, uh, I will just, uh, wrap up this whole behind the scenes section with one statement, which is that Samuel Jackson says of all of the movies he's made, The Long Kiss Goodnight is his favorite to watch at home. It's his favorite? It's his favorite. He mentioned this in a 2018 GQ video. Yes. The guy that's been in Pulp Fiction, Marvel films. I'm sure you could list more because you're better with this. Sure. And this is... Okay. I, I feel like I'm sort of leading how I feel about the film. So, okay. 
Whatever floats your boat, Samuel. We love you anyway. So I'll ask you first, because you have previous thoughts on this film. How does it feel revisiting it now in 2020? You know, I kind of had a blast with this movie. Um, It's a mess on a, you know, in a lot of ways, like it's a movie that is definitely using whatever screenplay it had going. And, you know, no, no offense to Shane Black. I love his work, but it feels like a clothesline for action sequences as so many of the eighties, nineties action movies were the big pumped up um, over the top ones. But this feels to me just like an insane comic book and that there's no realism. And, it's just incredible action set piece after incredible action set piece. All of them pitched at a level of intensity that is just through the roof explosive. Um, I think it has a lot of the fun, punchy Shane Black dialogue. It's not one of his more confident efforts. And I think we have to kind of debate whether this is a Shane Black film versus a Rennie Harlan film in this one. This one to me feels a little bit like um, True Romance. You know, is it a Tony Scott film or a Quentin Tarantino film? People tend to feel a little more like it's a Tony Scott film sometimes. I feel like this is a really good merging of Rennie Harlan and Shane Black into a movie that is in no way pretentious. It is a dumb action movie. But I think, honestly, we as a society have failed Gina Davis. I really think this performance, Gina Davis Davis Gibbs, and this character, and probably this movie would have done a lot better maybe a decade or so later. Um, At this point in time, female action heroes weren't really the norm or something that people were really racing to the cineplex to see as much. Um, You know, you did have Linda Hamilton in Terminator um, 1 and 2. You had Sigourney Weaver in Alien. But there wasn't a ton of them. And I think Gina Davis is doing amazing work here. But let's hear your thoughts. I think this is just a fun movie that's kind of a mess, but I want to hear from you. I I text you this uh, the other day when I watched it first, and it is still my first thought when I think of this film, and that it is a complete fever dream. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I I I actually watched this with with Hannah. Uh, she decided to watch a film with me, which is a rarity anyway, and we were just from the get go confused, not by a complex plot or anything like that, just confused by choices. You know, there are choices. Yeah, they, they certainly make statements. You know, from that opening credit sequence, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It feels like it's a Bond film intro. Mm-hmm. The soundtrack to this film is insane, and I want to talk to you about that at length later on. Yeah, but like overall, it's a fun film. It's certainly not a Christmas film, although nor is Die Hard, in my opinion. But if Die Hard is, then this one is too. Um. And I did enjoy watching it, but I just felt like it was a massive shame. And I think I, I suppose channeling it to what you said about Gina Davis, because to me, Gina Davis is like America's sweetheart. Yeah, right. Because you've got League of Their Own in the 90s, um, Angie, like she had a lot of movies that were very much pitched her as almost sometimes edging into that sort of Meg Ryan, America's sweetheart kind of territory for sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So seeing her... First of all, that sort of homemaker side of things kind of made sense. But then she's like snapping necks and then she dyes her hair. And you just think, what am I watching at this point? But let, let's take it back to square one, right? Yeah. This film opens past the little title sequence. You've got the little intro of them you know, making you know, homemaking and that sort of thing. 
Then they have this party. And, and I know I'm doing a walkthrough of the film and I'm not a big fan of, of walking through films for people. But what I want to get to is a particular scene where she's driving, I guess, her her husband's dad home. <laughs> I know exactly where you're going, yeah. <laughs> Me and Hannah, were eating dinner and we're watching this film and, you know, he, he's taken... She's taking her, I don't know, father-in-law home. And he's asking her, yeah, when was the last time you and my son, I guess. You know. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, a, a deer comes out of nowhere. And it, if not anything, this is a metaphor for this film. But it smashes through the windscreen. The, the, the old guy goes straight through it. She, the, the car goes careening off the road. And then she breaks the thing's neck. And I'm like, what is going on here? The soundtrack's blaring in my ears. And I, I put my knife and fork down. I was just watching the screen like, oh, my God. My favorite part of that is when the deer breaks through the windshield and then kicks the father-in-law in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as you said, they made choices in this film. This movie takes subtlety and just pounds it into the ground with a sledgehammer. Yeah. Aye, aye, aye. I knew we were going to get some, like activated spy thing because mm-hmm. it's even in the synopsis of the film so i i figure she was going to start using skills eventually and we get that later on in the um which is cutting the vegetables at home yeah but then like that that one-eyed dude turns up at the house <laughs> yep who apparently broke out of prison yeah apparently just that's just yeah whatever that's just swept off to one side he comes into the house with a shotgun with a grenade launcher attached which is definitely a choice and yeah. then blows a hole in the wall, and then Gina Davis throws her daughter <laughs> out of the hole in the wall into the the, the 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 house thing next door or whatever it is, a tree house. And I'm just yeah. scratching my head at this point, Cam. Yeah, you know, you talked about how this film felt like a fever dream, and I feel like it's often touching on the surreal intentionally. You know, when you look at sequences like that moment where she's kind of reawakened after the accident, you have the scene of her looking in the mirror and seeing, you know, Charlie, because, you know, she plays Samantha Kane. Samantha Kane's her homemaker character, but she's actually Charlie, um, this assassin character. And you have the two talking to each other in a mirror and it feels very surreal. It's portrayed in a very dreamlike way. This movie's doing things stylistically that feel like a fever dream. In, I think intentionally. That scene you're referencing, I, it's the one where she's in sort of the coma or the, the dream state and she's looking in the mirror, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. That felt so, like, cheap TV to me. It hasn't held up well as an effect. I'll say that much, yeah. Yeah, I I felt like I'd seen episodes of The Next Generation, which ended, I don't know, two years before this film came out, that had better dream sequences. Yeah, well, everything is done very garishly. Mm -hmm. Like, there's, there's no attempt to kind of approach it. This is not David Lynch assembling things like a painter. This is very much a big action guy who's just over the top in every extreme putting together character moments that are insane. <laughs> like this movie's insane. It really is. He's using a hammer and chisel to write a sentence and said you could just use a pen. But I don't know, like I very much appreciated Rennie Harlan's style watching this movie. Maybe it's because we know what was coming. And look, a lot of the John Woo stuff was fantastic. A lot of the Michael Bay early stuff I really like a lot. But post that era, 
we get a lot of action movies that look like garbage. You know, that Taken era introduces all these movies that are just like this hack and slash editing work. You know, mm-hmm. like Born did it well, but the ones that came after that all look like, you know, a lot of them look like garbage. Watching the action in this movie, I really appreciated the Rennie Harlan style, which is over the top and insane, but it looks fantastic a lot of the times. Yeah, I didn't really have much of a problem with the spectacle in the action sequences. That just that dream sequence did kind of irk me. Just it just mm-hmm. felt cheap. But yeah, I, I feel like the I've used this word before on some of our bigger movies, but the word bombastic. You know, there's there's no finesse with this. It is it is literally taking the idea on the page and doing it as loud as they can. Yeah, well, that's very true. That is a Rennie Harlan specialty. I mean, let's remember Die Hard 2, um, <laughs> Deep Blue Sea, um, you know, Cliffhanger. This is not a man known for making his small scale character dramas. I just, I find it so bizarre that he wanted to have Gina Davis. And I suppose that leads us on quite well to talking about Gina Davis, but as an action star. I would have to imagine she wanted to do it because she's the star of Cutthroat Island as well, which is also an action role. I think, you know, uh, Linda Hamilton and Sigourney Weaver, I think were getting a lot of notices and people thought they were very cool. And I think Gina Davis, who is very athletic um, in real life, probably looked at action movies as something that would be fun to do. And I I, I think she's incredible in this movie. And maybe that's sagging into Gina Davis now. But I think her performance here is really, really strong. And there's a moment I'll get to in a second, but... She has the bona fides to be an action star, I really feel. And I think wrong era. I think in a different era, Gina Davis is an action star. See, I I agree with your point about the era. I feel like if she'd done it in the, the noughties or the, or the tens now, I suppose as we're looking back on them, um, maybe it would have been better. We have films like Atomic Blonde, things like that, yep. you know, where female action heroes are absolutely fine. Um, but for me... Uh, maybe it's just it might be a, a slight difference in age between the two of us, but I couldn't not see her as Gina Davis, uh, homemaker. Right. When, when I think of scenes like her in the kitchen taking out the assassin after what I noted down as the Indiana Jones fridge moment, <laughs> um, and she you know, she she gets up, she breaks his neck, and then like licks the the, the custard off of her finger or whatever it was. And yeah. it's meant to be this like badass moment where like you crunching guitars and like wow and like kick ass. But in my head, I'm just like, this is ridiculous. Well, I agree it's ridiculous, but I think the movie knows it's ridiculous. You have that scene earlier on, you know, the cutting vegetable scene, which was actually kind of famous in that time. Like people really knew that sequence well. That was kind of the showpiece that they would trot out on, you know, the uh, late night TV market and everything. They would show clips from the movie. Maybe but, that was the trailer. Um, it probably was in the trailer. I know that they played a clip of it on the um, Siskel and Ebert review episode. I remember that from back in the day. Um, but that scene ends with her like hurling a knife into the cupboard, mm-hmm. you know, to stab a, a tomato. And I mean, I bought it. Like I bought that this character of Charlie was peeking out because when she does have that action sequence in the kitchen there where she kills the assassin, she's not yet Charlie. To me, the transformation takes place. After she's, you know, strapped to that torture water wheel and almost drowned and then goes back to that hotel and dyes her hair and everything and puts on the makeup, that's where that character really comes through. 
And next thing you know, she's doing shots and trying to seduce Samuel Jackson very aggressively. And to me, that's when the switch is really flipped. Up until then, I feel like it's moments peeking through, you know, that licking the custard off her hand or giving her daughter the really harsh pep talk um, when she falls down on the ice. (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned that bit. I wrote down, she must have gone to the Eric Banner parenting school. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. Was it life is hard? Oh, okay. I'm eight. Yeah. And then it cuts to the kid with like a cast on her arm. (laughs) I didn't know she broke her wrist. What the hell? Yeah. yeah. Good parenting, mom. <laughs> but like Gina Davis, you know, she's a serious actor. She'd won an Oscar for the movie The Accidental Tourist in the 80s. She's in The Fly, of course, with Jeff Goldblum. She'd done a lot of great work. And, um, you know, she took this role very seriously. She studied movies about split personality disorders. Um, she said the most uh, inspirational movie she watched was The Three Faces of Eve, which is a 1957 drama. I want to check that out, actually, just to see if there's any similarities in terms of references or anything like that. Um, But she obviously looked at this just as seriously as she would have, you know, a more serious role. And I totally buy her commitment here. And the moment I was going to, I, you know, referenced a couple minutes ago, there's a scene in this movie near the end, which we'll get to a bit later, but where she's surfing on a like side turned semi truck. And, you know, a handful of years earlier, Arnold Schwarzenegger had done the same thing at the end of Terminator 2, you know, in the summer of 1991 when that movie came out. And it really feels intentional that we have Arnold, the biggest action hero of the era, doing that in 91. And a few years later, we have Gina Davis doing the exact same thing. I think they were very much looking to make her an action icon. I I hadn't connected that with Terminator 2, actually. I missed that completely. I can see it now. You've said it. And, and I I completely buy her wanting to do this role and to be an action star. You always hear from actors that they love to play the sort of extremes, the villain or the, the super good guy, because it, it means they get to flex and do something they're not used to. I, I, I get that completely. I just, for me, I couldn't get past that sort of Gina Davis. Right. It didn't even work for you when she did the uh, dyed hair and we had the makeover montage. And then she's doing shots and all that, like a badass. Like I thought she really was playing a completely different character there. And I really enjoyed seeing these two clashing versions of that character. Uh, from an acting standpoint, I think she did a tremendous job of establishing Samantha and Charlie as different entities played by the same person. So yeah. I, I tip my hat to that. But for me, I sat there just, I when she dyes her hair, I just feel like she's just playing a character at that point. I mean, she is, she's right. an actress playing a character, but like... I, I suppose I couldn't get past it. So every scene was comical, whereas some of the scenes weren't meant to be comical. I have to imagine, though, like if this movie comes out later, Gina Davis does more action movies, right? Like this becomes something that's more in her wheelhouse versus kind of an oddity because I don't think people watch Cutthroat Island anymore, whereas I think this one has become something of a cult favorite. And so it's kind of like this oddity in her career versus maybe what would have been a trend had she had more success. Oh, for sure. You look at... I mentioned Charlize Theron in Atomic Blonde, but didn't she then go on to do um, Mad Max Fury Road after that? I think that was just before, but she did Fate of the Furious afterwards, um, after Atomic Blonde. So, yeah. So, you know, a bunch of action films in a small space of time. I I could see Gina Davis doing more of this. I, I, I suppose it was more my just lack of being able to get over the established mm-hmm. Gina Davis. But as I say, I tip my hat to what she did with the film. 
And I, I feel like she took it seriously. It's interesting, though, that it didn't really work for you, um, because I do wonder how much of that was a factor, you know, at the 1996 box office that people didn't really buy her as an action hero. Maybe. And and to be fair, I'm coming into this as, well, at 96, I was nine at the time. So I wouldn't have known about it at the time. But coming into it into 2020, my memory of Gina Davis, I haven't seen her in much recently. I'm sure she's still mm-hmm. at, uh, working but is of those films you mentioned before where she's playing more of the America sweetheart. Yeah. So, yeah. And Shane Black, when he first started writing the screenplay, he actually wrote it with a male uh, lead character, but realized fairly early on, like, no, no, this story does not work in any other way unless it's a female lead. So it wasn't like it was studio switched it to a female lead. It was Shane Black realizing this story only works if I'm telling it from this character's point of view. And, I just wonder if like a movie now would just really commit to that and really put that front and center and advertise it that way versus I feel like this one, they were couching it a little more and selling it more as a buddy action movie versus a Gina Davis vehicle. And a more of a comedy. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder what the original male version would look like when he was seducing Samuel Jackson. <laughs> it would have been amazing. It, it sounds great. Sign me up. Yeah, yeah, I'll watch that. Um, one thing I noted down, I suppose, as we're wrapping up our thoughts on Gina Davis's portrayal, is I thought it was interesting to see as a character what it would be like if Jason Bourne had had amnesia for longer. Mm, yeah, there's a lot of Bourne like um, crossover, isn't there? There's a lot of like water rebirth moments, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, very similar. Um, those moments where the skills come out in unexpected ways. Um, her own uh, people turning on her because she, you know, we didn't reference it, but she was a counter assassination operative who's recruited by the U S government. And in the years since she's been, you know, injured and had amnesia, the U S government, uh, or who was it? Do you know what the spy agency was? I don't think it was ever, I, I you see the CIA flash somewhere in the document yeah. or something like that. So we'll go CIA. And yeah, in the years since the spy agency that recruited her have gotten in bed basically with the guys she was targeting in the past and have gotten corrupt because of budget cuts from the U.S. government. And so, like, the whole idea of her on the run from her own people, very Bourne-like, too. I mean, we have to give Bourne the um, the points here because, obviously, the Robert Ludlum novels existed before The Long Kiss Goodnight. Um, but I wonder if there was a little bit of influence from those novels. I know Shane Black is very well-read. There's a good chance he would have maybe read those Bourne novels. And of course, the connection to Brian Cox is there too. That's right. Yeah, showing up as her former handler, Nathan. A very small role, um, introduced in a very bizarre scene, commenting on a dog licking its butt. But uh, he's having fun. One of my favorite scenes in the film, I got one of the most amount of chuckles out, was that scene with the old lady. I I wrote down in my notes, why is that dog nibbling the old lady's boobs? It's, this movie's insane, right? Like, it is low art. There is nothing about it that's <laughs> highbrow. <laughs> it is embracing the tacky, the obscene, <laughs> the absurd, the ridiculous. Yeah, like, it is just not interested at all in high class. Uh, the only moment you could say that maybe pays tribute to something that's classy is um, Rennie Harlan rips off the Pulp Fiction um, or Reservoir Dogs trunk shot where we get a flashback to Gina Davis's point of view being in the trunk of a car, going to be um, executed by 
um, you know, her enemies. Mm-hmm. And the shot is done the same way, the classic Tarantino shot from the point of view from the trunk of a car. So we have a one classy reference in a movie that is otherwise all just embracing and reveling in filth. <laughs> if you get a steal, steal from the best. That's right, yeah. I thought it was so weird. This movie, it references um, <laughs> Tarantino. It also references Baywatch Nights. I didn't get that reference. Yeah, there's a part where like someone is like rolling their eyes about what's on TV and they reference Baywatch Nights. And no one in the universe remembers Baywatch Nights. Do you have any knowledge of it, Scott? I In the back of my lizard brain, I have this concept that it was a spinoff that was like lambasted and awful yeah exactly it was a spinoff show where um david hasselhoff's character when he was a lifeguard by day at night he was a private eye so it went for more of these hard-boiled crime stories and uh starring david hasselhoff as mitch buchanan (laughs) i was gonna say like there's not a lot of lifeguards on the beach during the night you can't really see much so exactly yeah it was very much a moonlighting type job for him. And the show only ran for two seasons, I think. It ran like 45 episodes from like 95 to 97 or something like that. So the fact that this movie is commenting on this spinoff show that was a flash in the pan that the world has forgotten, I kind of loved. That may have been my favorite moment of the movie. <laughs> I, I, I had no idea the reference when it came because it was not a British thing. But I appreciate any weird reference like that. It was amazing. Loved it. <laughs> um, well, let's pivot on to, I think, my favorite character in the film. Uh, I'll give you a little hint if you'd like. Okay. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> you got it? Yeah, oh, yeah. Samuel Jackson, uh, Mitch Hennessy. Yeah, I, I can understand why he does like to revisit it. I don't really think it's his best work of his career so far, but uh, it. He is the funniest thing in this film. He, I mean, Samuel Jackson is an actor who is great with dialogue. That's why Tarantino loves him so much. He says no one does Tarantino dialogue better than Samuel Jackson. And I would say Shane Black dialogue applies to Samuel Jackson as well. He knows how to really milk that dialogue for all it's worth. It's just just from his introduction onwards. He's just a riot to watch where he's pretending to be a cop and, you know, screwing that guy out of money. Um, he's just funny. Yeah, he plays someone who's like sleazy but weirdly confident very well in this movie. And he has a really bizarre wardrobe a lot of the time. I, I, this character is in some ways a cartoon, but also the most, in many ways, sympathetic character in the movie. Yeah, he somehow manages to walk the line of being completely sleazy, but somehow you feel for him, which is the total opposite to Bill Paxton in, to- in True Lies. <laughs> and yet you have that sequence where he's in the car with Gina Davis's character and he's talking about how, you know, he had a partner when he was a police officer that didn't like him. And, you know, he led the authorities to Samuel Jackson's house where he had these stolen bonds in his closet. And she's like, you were framed. He's like, no, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and what? And you still love this character. Like this is a guy who has very corrupt morals, but you, can't help but be charmed by him he's very endearing and you're you're rooting for him very early on in the film even when he's trying to you know stiff our main character out of more money when he's pretending to be a private investigator um yeah he's just great and i i can understand why audiences didn't want to lose him from the film especially if it was earlier on and it's not when we think it was Mm mm-hmm 
Do you think the movie would be truer to itself if he died? I think it would have a, a I think it would have had a better ending as a in a narrative sense, but I think this film by the by the end it has it has jumped so many sharks that it may as well just have him come back from basically being killed. Yeah, like it's hard to argue about a character surviving in a movie this cartoonish. Um you, you wonder if it's more of a a moment for that character to die after saving them more of a redemption of that character mm-hmm. versus ending with like sexist dialogue on the Larry King show. <laughs> yeah. But that's also truer to who the character is, so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely themes of like reclaiming oneself and your personality, your your image in this film. And they, I feel like his arc would have ended better if he had died in the, the finale, much like I feel like that's the same for um, John Boyega's character in the eighth Star Wars film. Sure, yeah. I enjoyed with Samuel Jackson too, they made him somewhat of a damsel in distress in this movie. I mean, Gina Davis's character is very much the proactive agent in this movie. And his character, you know, he has a lot of bravado, talks a really good game, pulls out a gun all these times, almost never succeeds, is almost always captured and has to be saved by Gina Davis's character. It's it's almost refreshing for 1996 to have a scene where Samuel Jackson, with tears in his eyes, turns to Gina Davis and says, I'll be waiting for you to rescue me. Yeah. And he has that moment where he's like captured by the bad guys and he's like bound naked in a basement. And you see this point of view shot from his eyes looking up the staircase as Gina Davis kicks open the door and she's standing at the stairs as his rescuer. And I was kind of blown away that this shot existed in like a 1996 movie. Yeah, that's refreshing. And I feel like if, if, as we had said, it had played now, say this film had come out in the last 10 years, this would have been completely normalized and not really a topic of conversation. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad it was something that they did in 1996. We should also just reference, though, this movie does belong in the very much in the 1990s. Some of the racial politics of this movie are very problematic. We need to remember this was written and uh, directed by white guys. So um, it has some of the fallacies of that era for sure with this character. And maybe some dialogue that, uh, let's just say, you would never say in a movie nowadays. Especially when he's talking about, like, well, let's just say there's a reference to Pop Goes the Weasel that's... uh, a little offensive. Yeah, uh, that that bit did make me bump a little bit, and I did. I almost, I almost chuckled with a with a sadness that uh, when the cops turned up to Gina Davis's house, that they pointed the gun at Samuel Jackson first. Yeah, yeah. You, you kind of laugh at the situation, and you realize it, it's still pathetic that this is happening uh, twenty four years later. Right, and Shane Black. You know, you think about it. He wrote Lethal Weapon. He wrote Last Boy Scout he tended to really like to use black characters in his movies to make comments. So I think in some cases, a lot of that is intentional on Shane Black's part to expose these sorts of things. But then also he does fall into tone deaf areas as well. Yeah. And a lot of these sort of 90s action films did. True Lies has the same problem. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. It's something we'll be dealing with whenever we deal with these sorts of 90s sort of action movies or 80s action movies as well. Yeah. One question I have for you, which isn't necessarily about Samuel Jackson but kind of off what you said about Shane Black, uh, you said he has a lot of uh, black actors in his films. Mm-hmm. One thing, and you mentioned the sort of uh, military CIA subplot earlier on, whether you had that visit to the White House and things like that. Yeah. There's some sort of, sort of subtext there about military spending and aggressive acts by the, you know, 
paramilitary groups and things like that because I felt that whole scene about oh I've spent your money on healthcare was just this really odd scene. It was, and honestly, I'm not well versed enough in like U.S. political policy of the of the '90s. I would be really interested to go back and look at whether this was commenting on trends that were going on with. Uh, I guess would this have been Clinton? I guess this is during the Clinton era. Yeah, I think it's the end of his first term, or maybe the start of his second. Yeah, so I'm not sure if this was some sort of comment on Clinton policies of the era, or if it was just. Well, it had to be, right? Like, There's got to be satire to a movie where the U.S. government is teaming up with bad guys, citing it's because of budget cuts, and they want to stage a terrorist act to frame the Muslims to get more money put into the into their organization. Like, It feels like a satire or social commentary, right? Or political commentary. There had to be something there, because I bumped on it, and they, they mention it again, obviously, because it's kind of the justification for our bad guys to do what they did. Yeah. The lack of spending. Uh, it just felt like a, a strange avenue to go down a pop culture action film in the mid 90s. Well, that was the thing about Shane Black was he would always work these kind of transgressive or provocative ideas into these. I mean, let's, you know, pretty quote unquote dumb action movies. And that, that's why he was so popular. Yeah, I could see. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't hit you over the head with it. Yeah, no, he doesn't. Um I was going to say, though, getting back to Samuel Jackson just for a sec, I want to just acknowledge two things. One, mm-hmm. my favorite moment, I think, of him in this movie is the scene where she kicks him out of the car and he's just laying on his back smoking a cigarette um, in this long, protracted scene set to a song. I can't remember what the song was, but like a pop song until she pulls back around and picks him up again. Like, I love that sequence. I thought Samuel Jackson just milked it for everything it was worth. Oh, yeah, that was a terrific scene. And I, I actually didn't know why he was laying there for uh, ages. I was thinking, why they they kept the camera on him? It was only when he sort of lit the cigarette and just started taking it. I was like, oh, she's coming back. Yeah. Um, and another thing, I don't know if you picked up on this, but this is a movie that has Samuel Jackson escorting around a uh, a woman with amnesia who has superpowers she doesn't know how to utilize that are slowly reawakened over the course of this film. Am I talking about The Long Kiss Goodnight or am I talking about Captain Marvel? You be the judge. I hadn't put those two together. Yeah, you're right, actually. That is basically the same thing. Yeah? Yeah. And so I am curious if Long Kiss Goodnight was a bit of an influence when they were writing Captain Marvel. Well, at least they didn't blow up a standee of this film. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> yeah, no, very, very good point. Yeah, I don't think they would have. I think True Lies was the one they were taking aim at. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think they were. Well, from Captain Marvel to Captain Boring in my book, uh, and that's the husband, I believe, uh, is it Hal? Played by Tom Andes? Yeah. yeah. Um, I wrote down, she describes him at the beginning uh, as having a good sense of humor. Yeah. Every single one of his jokes misses the mark by so much. I'm just sat there like, he makes that joke, the speech at the beginning, where he's like, oh, at least I don't drink and smoke. Oh, wait, I do them both. Silent. I mean, he is that 90s style of white generic actor they would cast in a lot of TV or movies. Um, I think he kind of fits the bill, though, because I think he's supposed to be boring. I think she's supposed to have a boring kind of generic, small town kind of family life. And uh, he fits into that for sure. It just must be really harsh on the actor to be like, 
Okay, we're doing a, a casting for a male actor, and the only description is beige. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's he's nothing. He, he's just a plot element, really. But what did you think of Craig Bierko as the villain Timothy? I have thoughts. I I literally just wrote down, he's just kind of gross. He's slimy. I think Craig Bierko is astonishing in this movie. Like, this is a villain that I will not forget again. Like, Craig Bierko, there's nothing subtle whatsoever. And Shane Black has a history of writing very weird villains. This villain is insane. Like, and Craig Bierko seems to be in on some private joke throughout this movie. Everything he says, he has a weird look in his eyes. And I loved how over the top he was. Oh, yeah, he's playing it to the back of the theater. I mean, he he is hamming it up to the nth degree in this film. Uh, do I... I don't really recognize the name, though. I haven't dug into his IMDb. Has he done much else? He's done a lot of TV. He's popped up in a lot of things. I think the most notable big Craig Bierko role would be um, his role as the opponent in the Russell Crowe boxing movie Cinderella Man. And it was a very flashy role that got a lot of attention at the time. Craig Bierko's really fantastic in that movie as well. Hmm. Yeah, but in terms of his performance in this, he is, yeah, he is guns blazing. He's hamming it up with the best of them. For a film that actually references William Shatner, not to him, um, he's probably our Bill Shatner of this film. Oh, he is. Like, there is, we talked about how this movie has no subtlety, but this guy is just off the leash. And Craig Bierko, I remember seeing him some years ago in a um, uh, the Kevin Pollock chat show, which was a video podcast Kevin Pollock does. Um, I think he still does it, actually. I shouldn't have used the past tense there. Um, I hope you're doing well, Kevin Pollock. But he had Craig Bierko on to talk about his career and all that sort of thing. And Craig Bierko was really, really funny. And I remember watching that interview being like, huh, I didn't realize this guy was really funny. I thought he was just kind of a dramatic actor. Going back and revisiting this movie now, I'm like, oh, wait, no, Craig Bierko is really, really funny. <laughs> it's a shame he's not done much else because he clearly has some uh, comedy chops in this film. He really does. And I love how unrepentantly evil his character is, but his character also seems to be having fun the whole time. That bit where he's like schmoozing her at the bar in the train station. I just think like, ugh. And he, he is handling, oh, yeah. ugh. And even the bit where we find out that um, Charlie slash Samantha's daughter, um, Caitlin, is the daughter of Timothy. And his reaction to this, it's this bizarre scene where she's saying, look at look at her eyes, you know, before he's going to execute both of them. And he, the way he doesn't even look at the kid for like a solid beat before even looking and then just kind of sneering. You're like, this character is disgusting. <laughs> He's really fitting into our, our 2020 mold of uh, Bill Paxton characters. Yeah, in terms of like dudes that are just the epitome of slime in 90s action movies, Craig Bierko is amazing. And I think both him and Paxton know that they're giving comedic performances and are bringing a lot of... They're not winking at the camera, but they're acknowledging the camera subtly. And much like I said earlier, where Gina Davis and, and actors in general like to have these sort of to the extreme roles. I imagine Craig loved the idea of playing this character because he could flex his mustache twirling muscles. Yeah. Oh, totally. And the movie knows this character is over the top because look at his death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he goes out with a bang. 
I mean, they're fighting like over this drop into like, I don't know, what do you even call that? Like a reservoir or something? They're at Niagara Falls. Yeah, yeah. And he's he's sent off this massive plummet into the water to disappear. And then we cut to him climbing out of said like raging rapid, like covered in blood. He goes up in a chopper and then he falls out of the chopper after being shot multiple times onto a semi truck that then explodes. (laughs) People in this film just don't die. It's incredible. I mean, this movie, you don't just like, it's funny that Rennie Harlan made a diehard movie because this movie is die hardest. <laughs> there are scenes where like <laughs> Samuel Jackson, one of my favorite moments of um, him involving action is where he's just tied up captive. The bad guys have him. Gina Davis like blows up the basement um, using like a gasoline. Yes. And it shows Samuel Jackson get blown out the window of a house fly god knows how far in this bizarre action shot and he just like gets up and keeps moving <laughs> yeah uh, this film is like a panto i don't know if you guys have pantos over in in canada yeah we do oh, okay you do yeah so it, it is to the extreme and, and that scene with him flying out and then going through like the best western sign or wherever it was uh, that, that had me in tears yeah and you know, another moment too, you know, Gina Davis, when she takes down Craig Bierko's character, how does she do it? There's these like <laughs> Christmas lights that are dangling down. They're at the Canadian uh, U.S. border at this point, which I think it's interesting. There's a big battle at the U.S. Canadian border one year after Die Hard with a Vengeance. Um, I, I don't think this movie was ripping that movie off. It's just, I think, I guess it was a trend at the time. Um, you know, it was in the ether out there. But um Anyways, there's a flaming body hanging from up above. She, like, uses it as a pulley system. The body drops and pulls her up. And that's how she shoots Craig Bierko. And it's insane. It's like a complete cartoon. And I loved it. I feel like the moment she, like, shoots the thing or whatever, it's to, to get the cable to pull her up. I could just hear the da-na, da-na, da-na-na. She goes flying up, you know. Oh, yeah. Big time. And I had another question for you regarding an action scene that's over the top. Scott, what did you think of 1990s grenades in a hallway? Oh my god, I'm so glad you mentioned this. I mean, did, did grenades have longer delays, firstly, in the 90s? <laughs> and we should emphasize a single grenade, not a batch of grenades. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, a single grenade. So I, again, I'm going to describe a scene for people who haven't seen this film, and I recommend that you do. Uh, it's a lovely Christmas film. Uh, just don't watch it with your kids. Uh, or maybe do. I don't know. I'm not a parent. But um, so they get a grenade thrown at Samuel Jackson, Gina Davis. It's unpinned, so it's ready to go. Usually grenades have a three-second timer. So they, you know, pause, look around, pause, look around some more, run down a corridor, shoot out a window, and then the grenade goes off. But then the grenade blows up half the building. <laughs> like there is a wall of fire shooting down this hallway behind them. They run dive out the window. And then there's like this explosion of fire coming out the window. It's like, uh, I don't think grenades work that way. <laughs> and, yet, and yet in this film earlier on, a grenade launcher is shot at a fridge and the, the fridge door dents. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, you think of all these World War II movies, for example, where there's a grenade and someone jumps on the grenade. And it like stops, you know, the explosion is confined under their body and saves their buddies or something. Mm-hmm. We've seen it in many, many war movies. Um, in this movie, if someone had jumped on top of a grenade, 
it would just cut to a faraway shot of a mushroom cloud. <laughs> <laughs> You'd see them in out of space. It's like, oh. Yeah, it would show like Martians, uh, you know, <laughs> circling the planet. You get that shot of like the astronaut turning around in space and seeing the guy fly by. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> I mean, that's why I can't hate this movie. Like, it's just having so much fun with action dynamics. And it's doing it in such a crazy, insane way. That That's the bit I took away from this film um is it it knows what it is which is a cheesy 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 action film um, yeah and it it winks at the camera and it just goes with it mm-hmm. and i like that i appreciate that i did too no this was a movie that going in i really didn't have any expectations and i was just i, I wonder if i even could have appreciated it in 1996 or if i would have just looked at it and thought yeah run-of-the-mill action movie, seen this, versus now where it really does feel like a last stand of that era. <laughs> See, I think it's actually kind of different for me. Uh, maybe it's an age thing. Uh, say, I, I was nine when this came out. I imagine it came out around about Christmas. Uh, so maybe I would have seen it when I was 10. I would have thought this was an amazing film. I wouldn't have looked any deeper than the the, the surface, which this film doesn't want you to look any deeper than the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is an action schlock film. And it's great at doing that. Um, so I think young me would have really enjoyed this. I think it's older me that's picking it apart probably too much. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It just to me, I guess at that point, I was, I, I mean, I referenced them earlier. I was way more into like Broken Arrow, um, you know, the Van Damme stuff like Hard Target, which was also a uh, um, John Woo film, mm-hmm. as well as The Rock. The Rock was a big thing for me. And I just think compared to where i was then you know seeing those movies and then watching this i just don't think this one grabbed me the same way those did but i mean i don't think i'm i'm not asking you if this beats the rock now for you Mm. i think that's probably a silly question but would you revisit this film again 100 percent. okay well that that's a good thing um yeah oh yeah for sure yeah i i feel like we're sort of wrapping up our thoughts let's just have a quick shout out of any final uh performances uh that we'll make a mention of uh we briefly touched on brian cox earlier uh he's fun yeah has a really fun turn in this film uh he, isn't it too briefly in my opinion yeah he gets his little like save the moment he gets to you know show up take down a villain with his car and you know he's a character that at least with what little time he has does make an impact. It kind of brings a, a small amount of gravitas to the film, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and then we have, uh, we obviously have Yvonne Zimmer as Caitlin, the child of uh, Gina Davis's character. Uh, yeah. Um, Shane Black loves working kids into his movies. Um, he's done it really well. He did it in the nice guys. He did it in Iron Man three. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's generally better than here i don't think he really gets a lot out of this kid versus those movies i mean shane black though it's one of his many tropes also he sets most of his movies at christmas um but i felt like in terms of the kid trope it wasn't quite as strong here as some of his other work well i mean the character basically disappears from the film when she's thrown out the hole in the wall yeah um but i think what she has with the film and and, and child actors are always hit and miss I think Yvonne Zimmer does a, a good job of what she had. Yeah, she's she's fine. Um, another actor I actually always enjoy seeing pop up was David Morse. Mm. As you know, Charlie thinks, Charlie slash Samantha thinks this is her old fiance. Turns out it was actually her target. David Morse is one of those actors that can turn from just like genial, you know, small town guy to like cold, dead assassin 
really easily. And I think he's really cool here in a fairly small part, but a very effective part. He, for me, has always been Detective Michael Tritter from the House MD series. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's only in like, I think, six or seven episodes. But he is an absolute asshole in that TV show. Like you, you hate right. him because he is trying to take down your lead character of House. And I, whenever I see him, I'm just filled with rage. <laughs> Were you filled with rage here? I, I certainly was. I knew as soon as she saw him, he wasn't a good guy. Uh, and 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 then obviously I was proven correct. Uh, but yeah, he he is etched in my memory as an absolute asshole. So uh, it's good to see he's keeping that up. I think he's great in that sequence where they're her, where they're um, drowning her on that water wheel and they keep dropping her in the water. I think I think that's a fantastic sequence, one of the movie's best, and David Morse contributes a lot to that. I, I wrote down about that scene just fair play to Gina Davis because she's clearly strapped to that wheel. Yeah, you can't take yeah, for that. Sure. That she's I mean she's obviously not going underwater for longer than a second, but that's not that's still going to be quite harsh on your your back and your wrists and everything. So she went all in with that. That's the thing, like she really commits. You know, throughout this movie, you really get the sense Gina Davis was working overtime on making this action, this crazy, silly action, look as authentic as possible from, her, you know, her character's standpoint. Mm. Yeah, she she puts the time in. And I think that's probably one of the things I take away from this most, even though I think Samuel Jackson, for me, tops it in terms of best performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but they both commit to it. And I think that's the yeah. film's benefit. I just think the film probably, I, I don't know what is rubbing me the wrong way about the film. It's probably just the fact that I don't buy Gina Davis as an action star overall. Um, right. But I think that's probably leading us into the finale and our ultimate question. But Cam, do you have any final mentions about the film? Uh, a couple quick things I'll just mention is a couple little references they worked into this movie. At the end, we see Jeannie Davis driving in a convertible with like a scarf over her head. Yep. That's very much evoking um, Thelma and Louise from a few years earlier, mm-hmm. which Jeannie Davis, of course, was really fantastic in. Um, another one, at one point, Samuel Jackson's characters watching the movie The Long Goodbye on TV, which is a um, Robert Altman film. Um, starring Elliot Gould, which is a private eye film, really worth checking out. Fantastic movie. And you can tell that that sort of writing is a big influence on Shane Black. So it's more like Shane Black working in a little self-congratulatory nod, you know, kind of like, guys, this is what I love. You know, check out this movie. It really influenced what I do now. That's a cool little nod. I didn't I didn't notice that, but I didn't know the film, to be fair. Yeah. Um, the only thing I've got, uh, have you got any more, Cam? No, I think that wraps me up. Okay, the only note I've got that we haven't somehow got to was uh, I'm going to paint the picture again of another scene for you. Uh, I, I I believe it's around about the time they go to Atlantic City. Okay. And she's in the shower, Gina Davis. Yeah. So you get kind of a, I think they're going for like a sexy shot. I think she's dyeing her hair at this point. You know, she, she's having a makeover, basically. She's coming out as Charlie. It pans down on her in the shower and the, the soundtrack. And that's the other thing I want to mention in a second. Sorry. The soundtrack is giving it kind of like a funky thing to it. And then it pans down to her feet and you get the sexiest thing of all. And that is a non-slip mat. <laughs> oh, I didn't notice that at all. I, I, I literally saw it and howled with laughter. I had to stop watching the film for a minute just to get my breath back. Yeah, yeah, they're trying to give you this like sexy reveal of Gina Davis as Charlie. And it's like, wow, she's kind of naked in the shower, pan down. Oh, no, there's a non-slip mat. Don't want her to hurt herself. 
<laughs> well, you know, I just turned 40 and that's what happens. You hit 40 and you put a non-slip mat in your bathtub. You just have to. The Canadian government issues them to you, I've heard. A man came in and installed it. I didn't even know he was showing up. <laughs> uh, there we go. So I, I did actually just jump. I remember to mention the soundtrack to this film. Yeah. I From the get-go, this soundtrack is insane. I think it probably what helps this film be slightly off the wall is I, I can't even pick out some of the song choices, but like it bounces around to almost every genre you can think of and it just plays it loudly. Yeah. It, everything about this movie is loud. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it, I think we, we hit it on the head earlier. It's not a subtle film and the soundtrack is not subtle. No, you've got the Christmas music. You've got a lot of soul music, um, a lot of funk stuff. And then just like some, I don't know what that song at the end of the movie was during the credits. That was something else. But yeah, it just bounces all over the place. I wonder, I mean, Shane Black, this is sort of a trend of him to work in Christmas music for sure. Part of me wonders if there's a little bit of that Tarantino influence too, because Tarantino has very much revitalized the idea of using a very kind of weird collection of music throughout your movie. And I wonder if this is that factor coming out of Pulp Fiction just a couple years earlier. I just think that with Tarantino, he uses it to try and enhance whatever he's doing in a scene. Yeah. Or to give some story to something. Whereas this just distracted me. Well, like Tarantino's the pretty much the best in the business at this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, among them, you know, he's one of the greats at using soundtracks. You know, Martin Scorsese's great. Spike Lee's great. But um, yeah, like uh, Rennie Harlan is not on that list. <laughs> I enjoyed this though. It's it's very trashy and fun. Yeah, trashy and fun, exactly. And it, it's just that scene like where she kills the deer, and you basically get that horror like deer, 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 just to remind yeah. you how horrific this is. Yeah. yeah. What a what a bizarre film, man. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry <laughs> Christmas, everyone. Okay, Cam. Here we are. We've spent an hour or so talking about this film. My question to you is: Does the long kiss good night? Make the knock list. Oh, it's like part of me, a sick part of me wants to put this movie on the list because I enjoyed it so, so much in in terms of just its pure trashy appeal. But is this a great spy film? (laughs) Is there any spying whatsoever? (laughs) Uh, Not a lot. Not a lot. No, it's a lot of assassinations. It's mostly like Gina Davis is just really good with guns and blowing things up. Um... I, I think my answer is a no, but it's a it's a no in terms of the movie fitting into the spy canon versus a uh, you know a decision based on my enjoyment of the movie, which I, I enjoyed just how insane this movie was so much. Yeah, I think that's I think that's where I'm coming down on it too. This is kind of a case of I looked back on the the Man from Uncle as an example of this, mm-hmm. where I enjoyed the film. But is it making this knock list? No. I, 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 we've already got true lies on here in terms of an action spy film, and that does everything right for me. This film feels like it... Yeah. Mm. This film feels like it misses the mark, but it's a great ride anyway. Well, and I, maybe we need to explain, like, why does true lies get the yes versus this getting a no? Do you have a reason in your head? For me, when I decide on the knock list, it's kind of like an intrinsic feeling. It's not like a tick right. box exercise. I just kind of know when I finish watching the film. So it's hard for me to put into words how I go through that process. But I just feel like True Lies was a more 
complete film and I, I I bought the characters, whereas I bumped on Gina Davis. Much as she commits to the role, and I as I said, I tip my hat to her. She's she's put her all into this, and you can see it on the screen. Yeah, but I I just wasn't buying Gina Davis as a spy. For me, I think it comes down to True Lies is very much trying to do spy action movie stuff. Like it feels like a pumped up James Bond homage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel more of the spy vibe in the movie versus this movie. Yes, her character is an assassin, but it feels much more like these buddy action movies of that era. It has a lot of the private eye kind of film noir stuff going on. It's more of a hodgepodge of various elements versus really belonging in a spy canon. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone's going to come at us if we say... The Long Kiss Goodnight didn't make the knock list. Now, there's not many Christmas spy films out there. So maybe we're missing a trick on that angle. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I could sleep at night if I put this film up with North by Northwest and Doctor No. Yeah. No, I think that's a a good take. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think there would be pitchforks at dawn with that one. Yeah. But I do recommend people watch this movie. Um, It's It's crazy. Exactly, Cam. This episode of the podcast is coming out three days before Christmas. I think this is a, a fantastic film to watch. It will bring you some cheer in an otherwise dreary year. Um, it's certainly something interesting that I've never seen before, and I'm glad I got to visit it for the podcast. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So there we go. It's a no from me and a no from Cam. And as such, The Long Kiss Goodnight is not making the knock list and the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. But before we get into what we have coming up for the last episode of 2020, I want to take a moment to mention another podcast that's been really helpful to us and we both really enjoy listening to, and that is the Paul and Griff show. Now, these guys are both two Londoners. One doesn't live in London anymore, and they uh, cover every single movie franchise you can think of, all the best things from X-Men recently to Jurassic Park. You name it, they've done it or they will be doing it. And they go in-depth on the film and the franchise as a whole and also some great sort of top six lists. And they talk about the toys and things that the the films have brought out and brought to us. Uh, Hopefully one day we can uh, sneak onto their show and infiltrate them. But uh, we'll definitely be having them on the show sometime in the future. So the Paul and Griff show, you can find them on all the major podcast apps. Check them out. Awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they say top six, six is my lucky number. So that means Paul and Griff have a little bit of that glow as well. There you go. It's magical. Uh, so Cam, we alluded to it before, but what are we doing for the last episode of 2020? We are going to do something a little bit different. We're not going to tackle one movie. We're going to tackle all the movies we've talked about so far. We're going to do a little bit of a retrospective on um, the year, talking about the movies that made the knock list, didn't make the knock list, maybe regrets or you know feelings about how things have shaped up over the course of this year of the podcast, or I guess half year for us. But nonetheless, we want to do a little bit of a look back and just talk about the journey of Spy Hards thus far. I think it'd be a good idea to go back and look at what we've covered so far and really mull over our choices and uh, hopefully we can think of some uh, magic moments we've had so far to look back on as well 
I think it'll be a lot of fun. So check that out, folks. So there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is not to watch a film for next week, as I imagine you'll all be stuffing your face full of Christmas dinner and surrounding yourself with family if you can, hopefully. If not, socially distance and through Zoom. Uh, but if you do get the chance, go back and listen to some of our episodes if you haven't caught them all before. And we'll be discussing all the movies we've covered so far this year. Don't forget to follow us discreetly, of course, on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, see you, folks.